violence per se has never been my bag, except personally. But in pictures, as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on screen as it is. Uh, I've failed, and I've succeeded. And, uh, but all those pictures you talk about basically are morality plays. I've broken a lot of fences and noses. I just do the uh, best kind of a job I know how. And, uh, but there are certain people who are filmmakers and there are certain people who are not. That's all. It's your favorite movie podcast, The Good, The Pod, and The Ugly, Season 10, Side Hustles. Uh, All season, we are picking film luminaries, if you will, um, who have directed movies but are are better known as something else. Mostly actors. We've branched out a little bit from two musicians, makeup artists, and this week we're doing famed American novelist Norman Mailer. Um, (laughs) Norman Mailer. Uh, who died, what, 10 years ago? Nine years ago? Really? Yeah. And so uh, as his day job as a writer, we picked um, Cremaster <laughs> 2, uh, the Matthew Barney art installation film um, that is nominally taken from Mailer's The Executioner Song, and then Mailer's late career something piece, uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance from 1987. Which was made before Cremaster Two, but we're going to be talking about second, right? Anyway, I'm Ken. Hi, I'm joined by my co-host Thomas. Oh, bonjour, Haru uh, de te revoir, Jacques. Jacques, coucou. Good enough, Jacques. Does that mean something? <laughs> and surprise uh we're, we're visited by our french compatriot jack <laughs> yes longtime co-host now expatriate living in paris hi jack hi yeah um former former founder no current founder founder uh former co-host former host uh now guest of the show uh, uh, wait so we're doing this remote we're not in the doghouse uh today recording jack how 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 do we know it's actually you when was the last time you saw me in a suit oh i guess it was six months ago at the john wick three premiere okay for uh, uh, john wick what oh okay. oh it's no, not it's him four. yeah <laughs> it's not me uh... <laughs> uh well welcome jack Tell us about the cinema scene in Paris. Are you going out and seeing uh, repertory art films every night, wearing a beret and talking about it into the wee hours of the morning in a cafe? You know, I've I've gotten pretty into hats recently, but I haven't picked up a beret yet. Um, uh, as far as as far as the the film scene goes, there there is like a an art house film district sort of in the the artsy sort of college area, and there's a bunch of art house theaters that show great films and i've been going to a lot of those um with my sister too and they play a lot of dario argento they really like dario argento here and lots of paul thomas anderson so yeah i've been seeing some good stuff so when you're watching a giallo there is it 
dubbed or is it do they have subtitles and if it has subtitles are those in english or how are you just following along because you know it by heart <laughs> that's um, a good question if i saw Suspiria, i would i would know it by heart so it wouldn't matter um however wait the good one or the one that uh dario argento did oh are you fucking kidding me podcast over <laughs> welcome back jack i'm so glad i i i've been for so long having to say okay xer you know my catchphrase yeah uh now now there's somebody younger than me on the podcast and it feels great i'm glad to be the punching bag <laughs> always punch down that's the first rule of good comedy yeah 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 it, yeah it gets me off the hook anyway thanks jack no uh, so Norman Mailer, this was one of the very early names we brought up for this side hustle season. And and Jack, you were the one that was the most excited about it. You, you've you read some Mailer. You're um, a huge fan of Cree Master 2. Um, can you tell us a little bit why this was the episode that you were like, shit, I need to get my microphone in Paris and I need to be on this episode where in all the other ones that you said you were going to do, it didn't work out. Why is this the one that you had to be on? Ooh, that's, uh, well, I got really into the Matthew Barney films about, um, a little more than a year ago. And I watched Cremaster two, probably four or five times. And I watched a few other of his films and I got really just interested in Norman Mailer. Not that I read a lot of his books. I read, um, Ancient Evenings, which is the almost thousand-page ancient Egyptian epic that he wrote, and it took me a long time to read because it was terrible. And I've started reading probably like three or four of his other books. Um, and yeah, I just can't get into his writing, but he it's really good, and I don't understand him as a as as a person. He doesn't seem like a real person to me, and. Um, my friend, uh, one of my my best friends, was a huge Norman Mailer fan and loved um, Harlot's Ghost. I think that's what it's mm-hmm. called. And yeah. we watched a couple of the the Matthew Barney films together, and just I don't know something about their their working relationship together. Um, Barney adapting two of his novels. He adapted Ancient Evenings in 2016, I believe, into a film called um, Spring Something. It's escaping me right now, but. Um, yeah, he. Both of these directors, I think that we're talking about today, are just uh, enigmas, and both of these films are fascinating for similar and opposite reasons. Oh, okay. So you you've seen both of these before, clearly. I know. I know. I watched Tough Guys Don't Dance with You last year. Yes. Thomas, how about you? Coming both to both of these films. This is uh, the first time for both. I mean, I knew about some infamous scenes in uh, Dance. <laughs> but uh i <laughs> this is the first time I've, I've seen both of these i and in fact i was wondering jack because uh you, you were you were pretty gung-ho and like uh your dad said he like you only took the big leap and and got internet and uh google translate back to english and all these other things so you could be on the podcast um for this one and it seemed like you maybe wanted to 86 the podcast because you have a film that is almost impossible to watch paired with one that is uh, nearly impossible to watch. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what for reasons of like 
be able to find it in any type of streaming medium, anything, right? I think you could buy the DVD for Cream Master for something like uh, a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you could get like that Wu-Tang album, that one album that they did uh, for something comparable. Uh, and then the other movie, generally available, very hard to get through. <laughs> So yes, uh, uh, we, we may have some disagreements on these. So okay, more more so uh, than maybe what, what was our lowest downloaded, but our, maybe one of our favorite uh, uh, designated movies? mourner. Yes, designated mourner. I had the same thought about this episode. Like nobody <laughs> is going to be listening to us, but it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about both of them. And there won't be much change. Like it's a, it's really an N of one, right? Like, or uh, you you change from one person being listening to us to nobody. So you know, it's not that big of a loss. <laughs> uh, do you want to? So we're we're doing the chronologically made. We're doing the Cremaster two first. So the, oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's something okay. I actually wanted to talk about uh, off the the top of the episode because a while ago there was something where. Um, River of Fundament is the name of the film that Matthew Barney adapted from Ancient Evenings, the Mailer novel, in 2014. And this one had a thing a while ago where people who were logging it on Letterboxd were getting their reviews struck down by the website because it's technically not available to watch anywhere. Like, you have to watch it in whatever art house, theater, yeah. museum circuit it's playing at. Otherwise, technically, you're not supposed to be able to see it otherwise because you're pirating uh-huh. it. And so I think we should just say that we all flew to New York to an art exhibition and saw Cremaster 2 for this episode. Yes. Yeah, that and all of Crispin Glover's movies at the same time. It was <laughs> quite... And I, I, I do have a lot to say about Barney's method of showing these films and well, financial rewards for it, but we'll get into that after we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, and I do appreciate, I mean, it's about the same amount of time for us to get to New York as you, Jack, so it, <laughs> I, got, I, I was going to thank you for that, uh, uh-huh. but really, uh, it's just, it, it feels bad just from a carbon perspective that we all flew to New York City to watch this. Um, <laughs> but big thanks to the um, museum for uh, showing Cremaster 2 in New York. Wow, we, we, have fol- we have folio. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. That? Did, 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 I, did I go in and out a little bit there? <laughs> uh, hey, so how about we cover quickly who Mr. Mailer was? Yes. Yep. Because he wa- he didn't die 10 years ago. He died 16 years ago. But who okay. wants to correct somebody at the top of the show? Uh-huh. Uh, he would have been born in uh, 23, uh, ended up publishing, I think, 12 novels, either 11 or 12 novels in a period of just under 60 years and would die in November 10th, 2007. Uh, he wasn't born Norman Mailer. Uh, it was born Nahum Malik Mailer in New Jersey and uh, would go on, I think he was like 17, maybe, when he got into Harvard. He would publish a story that would win uh, Mm -hmm. Story Magazine's college contest in 1941 called The Greatest Thing in the World at age 18. Uh, He got two Pulitzers, one for Armies of the Night and the other one for Executioner's Song. Uh, Armies of the Night getting uh, the National Book Award as well. Uh, But he broke into everything through Naked and the Dead, which is his, uh, unlike his later writings, which would be more reportage 
um, from uh, uh, well, uh, this this would be a, a fictionalized account of World War II based a lot mm-hmm. on letters that he wrote his first wife, first of six wives. That that's kind of important, maybe to dance. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, he came out. Uh, he broke out with Naked and the Dead, which he actually volunteered for some infantry work at the latter part of the war to be part of the war. He felt like he needed to be like Hemingway and experience the world, which prior to all this, like back when he was in college, he, uh, according to a, a New York article I read, uh, took uh, two weeks and hitchhiked to have a sense of what it was like to be uh, a hobo, sleeping outdoors and uh, going back home to, to Jersey over a two week period. Uh, just, sleeping and not really bathing and just kind of uh riding the rail and hitching rides because wow. he had this desperate need to experience things yeah uh, but yeah he would get he would be a little bit of a boxer which is maybe why i thought jack you know he likes ua bowl uh <laughs> baylor you know uh Mailer, prior to the movie that we're about to talk about today that he directed directed three films that were uh improv films films without really a set script uh most infamous of them probably is maidstone um it's i think whenever they came out with the criterion collection of these three movies it was called the it was titled off of the maidstone uh and the reason that that's probably the most infamous is because it has rip torn in it and one of the reasons it's most like just like uh freddie got fingered right um (laughs) But the other, uh, the most, <laughs> the reason that he, uh, uh, this is probably his most infamous uh, of those three, is that there was a little bit of a brawl during this. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. That's uh, great. Rip toward, <laughs> uh, suffered an infection in his ear caused by the teeth of Norman Mailer. Those teeth <laughs> clamping down on his ear as they're rolling around on the ground fighting. Uh, which was spurned maybe by Rip Torn hitting Mailer with a hammer. I think they were a little intoxicated during uh, <laughs> the filming. Go go to YouTube, watch the video, and then tell us if you think they were a little inebriated. <laughs> That's part of the reason Mailer fascinates me so much is because I just every image you get of him is of this um, inebriated beyond belief, just like animal. Like barely even able to speak, and yet he was such a prolific writer who won, like you said, two Pulitzers. Yeah, he's like he's like Wolverine <laughs> a little bit. I mean, if you ever he, seen him box, he's about as hairy as Wolverine. <laughs> a beautifully hirsute man, yes, yes. And uh, one of the more infamous things uh, culturally, I think, that still resonates uh, is whatever he went on the Dick Cavett show and got with into it with which uh-huh. is why Jack doesn't like the movie Lincoln is because Gore Vidal uh, wrote the book Lincoln. And ever since he's in the mailer camp. Yes. That's yeah. my understanding. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 Jack, I've did a lot of searching trying to figure out why you were sent gung ho for mailer this week. So, um, he's, he's the story about we, we mailer and women is a very complicated subject because he was raised with a bunch of sisters. He would later say that, that he was always thought that he was kind of the agitator with women because of that. Um, but either his first or second wife, he stabbed her 
Yeah. Um, they were having a party and they were all drunk. Yeah. And famously, friends of theirs came to a sister and, and he told them to le- le- let her be, to let the bitch die. His um, wife. Not his sister. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, talked her into not pressing charges because he was <laughs> hilariously running for mayor at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, he he did get locked up in a sanatorium for I think six weeks during but that. Just like his hobo experience, he probably did that for more experiential and and for the PR. Um, yeah, no, he's been married six times, which I I don't want you to divorce Andrew. I, I love Andrew. I hope you guys live for a long period of time uh, together, Ken. But. Uh, I would love to hear five more best man speeches from Jack. Oh God. Uh, okay. We uh, might have to redo the ceremony then. <laughs> we'll just have a, a renewal. And um, one of his wives is great because it's Carol Stevens. She was his penultimate wife. Um, eventually in the eighties, uh, um, Mailer would settle down with Barbara Davis, who he would be married to uh, until his death. Uh, but prior to that he married, and this is kind of gives a sense of like the oddity of some of his ideas about women. Um, he married Carol Stevens, if it's this fifth wife, if I remember right, uh, so that the child that they already had while he was waiting for divorce proceedings to go through, uh, with Beverly Bentley, his fourth wife, uh, so that whenever they would, uh, one of the, those papers would be finalized that he could marry and uh, divorce her on one day apart, uh, Carol Stevens, so that their child would be legitimate retroactively somehow. And then, yeah, after they divorced, then he married Barbara Davis. He, he had a lot. I mean, that's a lot of wives. That's a lot of alimony. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I'm not too sure what it says in the era that we're going to be talking about him in that he was married to the same woman. Aside from he uh, wasn't exactly faithful. No. But she would, uh, yeah. He apparently yeah. was a great dad. Like all of his children. Uh, and, and That, and that is true. As well. Like lo- love. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, the mom's not, he wasn't great with the moms. But um, yeah, all his kids universally. Um, great he dad. He didn't stab any of them. Well, he, he, yeah, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hey, don't don't bring up old stuff between you and Ken, Jack. <laughs> just Ken can still be a perfectly good dad if he stabs you just a little bit. <laughs> Contextually, it all makes sense. Uh, so, Executioner's Song. Th- Thomas, have you read the book, The Executioner's Song? I have. Uh, former member of Weird AI. Uh, one of our, I think in the, you could hear him definitely during our uh, Nicholas Cage season, uh, some of the backup vocals there. Uh, Michael, uh, I'm not going to say his last name, but uh, Michael for my birthday many years ago gave me Executioner's Song and it sat on my shelf for maybe five years and about, I don't know, uh, right before the pandemic, I decided to read it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I enjoy Mailer's like I enjoy uh, the piece that uh, uh, unboxing that he did for uh, about Muhammad Ali and the fight, um, uh, and all the machinations, all the interesting stuff that happened there. Um, I enjoy Armies of the Night. Um, I've never read 
uh, Nick and the Dad, never read the Egyptian masterpiece uh, that Jack has read. So can I can I tell my executioner song story? Ooh, is it short? It is. It's not as long as the book. Uh, last okay. year, I had, as you know, substantial a substantial surgery, not major surgery, because I wasn't dying, uh, and I was laid up. Uh, the first, and I really wanted to s- to soak into a big, huge book, and I picked Executioner's Song because I always wanted to read it. Um, so the the first week after my surgery, I had so many drugs in my system, so much, you know, oxycodone, uh, anti inflammatories, uh, antibiotics. I was. And did they give up. you anything for the surgery? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so I started reading this book and um, I would be like getting my pills at 3 a.m. and not be able to go back to sleep. And I would just read this book and I read it in such a weird mental fever state that I started having dreams like I was in Utah because it was so the writing is so vivid and it's so much minutia that I would have dreams that were like sunbaked uh, Utah that I was like there in the book. Um and then after a week, you know, I start tapering down on all the mind altering stuff. And um, I got halfway through the book and I, I could not finish it because every really? time I s- went back into it, I went right back into that weird headspace I was in, which was like, yeah, not really conscious, but not unconscious. And it was so vivid that um, I haven't been able to finish it since. Um, but so I, I think we, about it. If we started to read some of the passages to you right now, you would. Like go into it'd be like a a trigger Manchurian for like candidate. a Manchurian candidate, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please don't. Uh, but anyway, um, so I was excited about watching Cremaster Two. Uh, Jack, can you are you going to tell us a little bit about Matthew Barney? Do you want me to? Yeah. Well, real quick before before we, I just want to say what these films have in common, which is a bit of a stretch for me. Both uh, movies have images of water in a montage. Mm-hmm. They both show a woman's nipples. Mm-hmm. They both have cops. They both have a church or a temple. They both have a headshot. Yeah. <laughs> but the only one that really counts is they both have seances. Yes. True. And? Is that it? That's it. There's not... Well, I, as we talk about Crew Master too, you, we, there might be a reason that there's not more in common. Uh, yeah, okay. Matthew Barney is a is a New York um, a, a a rich New York. Um, I guess I guess you could call him a modern artist who does uh, museum pieces, and a lot of them are displayed through film. And um, He's probably most famous for being married to the singer Bjork for a very long time. Um, they have a child. They have, they a, have child. a child. Um, it was born the shape of an anvil and covered with feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's like a normal human now. <laughs> yeah, he started. He started doing uh, um, art exhibition pieces with a, a series that he called Drawing Restraint which he made mm-hmm. like 20 of and only one of those has been released in uh, digital form, which is drawing restraint number nine, which stars Bjork, which who is at the time, his wife. And that is a, a very good film. If you get the chance to see it legally. Um, but yeah, he directed the cremaster cycle from 1994 to 2002, I think. And he filmed them out of order 
Um, so two, which is the one we're talking about today, which stars Norman Mailer as Harry Houdini, um, was the second to last one to be filmed and released. And yeah, as, as we said a little bit, they, these have only been shown officially through museum exhibitions, which are very rare in New York City only, I think. And uh, DVDs were released of them for like $10,000, something crazy like that, right? Yeah, I, I think um, in my letterbox review of this film, I, I mentioned how closely aligned his method of making a film and then using it to sell stuff, um, most notably sculptures in the film or these obscenely priced um, digital copies of them, is not that different from Disney making a superhero or a Star Wars and then using that to sell rides or sell toys. Um, but he, he is an artist. Uh, and it seems- I, I'm going to say it's, it's I'm not saying that I'm not equalizing the art, but he's using one thing to sell something that is not the thing. Well, how and that's is, the same how thing. These films ever make any money. Well, they they wouldn't, and he has made. He, he's a very rich man. Yeah. Um. And he he his mom was was also an artist. Um. He went to Yale. Yeah. He was a football player, a model. She gave him entry into the art world. He kind of um reminds me of uh, the episode of Seinfeld where George shows the photo of Susan, and then he gets invited to this this completely amazing world where models you know intermingle in what's a, a meat locker during the day. Um, and then he loses the photo and he doesn't get back in, but Barney really had an entry into this world that a lot of people don't. And he has definitely utilized it, um, for both artistic and financial gain and more power to him. Well, that's, that's what intrigues me as Barney as a person is he on the surface and maybe he actually is, I don't know him personally is a pretentious nepotism, baby, rich New York, um, artist who, can make, you know, some abstract art that doesn't have any meaning and make tens of thousands of dollars off of it. But his, the actual films of his that I've seen really, um, they really do affect me to my core. And I think he is, I think he is a brilliant filmmaker who wouldn't, I don't think he would describe himself as a filmmaker. And I don't really know if he is technically, but um, for someone to have that level of, complete mastery and control over the filmmaking medium and to be that kind of person in that world is just um very out of place to me now you'd said jack and yeah i understand if you don't uh have him on speed dial so you could text him if you don't already know this um but uh, <laughs> they crew master 2 was his penultimate movie for shooting but fall, but as a number two, it falls within the second in the sequence. Uh, is did did he ha- did, was he like Lucas, and did he have all this planned out in his head perfectly? And he was like, "Well, I technically can only do them in this order because of where things are at, technology wise, or shooting schedule, or whatever it might have been." Or do you have any sense of why they weren't filmed sequentially? Um. The only thing I could say to that is because I've only seen of the Cremaster films, I have only seen one and two. Legally. Um, legally, yes. But Cremaster 3 was the one that was filmed, uh, made and released last. And that one is the biggest one. It's three hours long and it takes place in New York and it's about the construction of the, the Chrysler building. And it has um, 
like a racing sequence with race cars in it, I think. But I think that was the biggest one to film. And I believe, to my knowledge, that Cremaster 2 would be like the, the second biggest in terms of what they needed to actually um, be able to film and show on screen. So I think it it must have been a budget thing. That okay, because be- what you're talking about for three, and I think that might have been the one where they took the field and they dyed it all blue. Uh, like a football field or something, or uh, American football field. It doesn't sound like. Actually. Oh, is it? Yeah. Can we can we uh, get out of the way what what cremaster actually means? Yeah, it's like it's like well, a muscle that contracts the <laughs> testicles. I think. Right. So there there are themes of ascending and descending in these films. Am I am I correct in assuming that I've only seen the one or at the number two? So um, well. Can I read the letterbox description for Cremaster 2? Sure. Um, Cremaster 2, 1999, is rendered as a gothic western that introduces conflict into the system. On the biological level, it corresponds to the phase of fetal development during which sexual division begins. In Matthew Barney's abstraction of this process, the system resists partition and tries to remain in the state of equilibrium imagined in Cremaster 1. So, like, none of that makes any sense to me, and I have never understood, like, at all what the Cremaster films are supposed to be, and what the description of them that you read on the letterbox or on the Wikipedia or whatever, it just doesn't really gel with how I feel about the films themselves. Okay. I guess my other question there is, you've legally seen one and two. Uh, I think three might actually be available somewhere for streaming. Um or, or for I remember there three being somewhat available. Uh, does two pick up exactly where one left off? <laughs> Is it <laughs> because because uh, I, I was uh, I was reading somebody's manuscript, uh, doing some edits on it, and uh, it said in 1953, and they were making a joke about uh, a sequel being two, and I was like, that's historically inaccurate because we all know that the first uh, movie to use the number two in its title was Quartermaster Two, the 1957 sequel to uh, Quartermass. But in the states, that was released as a, with a different title uh, whatsoever. Like so, the, uh, I guess what I'm going with is <laughs> most uh, most films until you get to Jaws two. And 78 uh, didn't have to. Like Godfather 2, they didn't want to. It's actually Godfather Part 2. They didn't, the studio didn't want Coppola to release it as a 2. Because uh, they they didn't think that people, people, they thought people maybe would get confused with Godfather. They wouldn't see the extra numeral next to it. Uh, so that all that's like a newer phenomena. And it's really popular, as we probably know, uh, not just in action films, but especially in horror films. And I always thought that, and so whenever we were going to do a movie called Cremaster 2, I thought it was going to be a horror movie. I would classify it as a as a horror movie. Okay. Are, are you referring to the sequence where, I didn't know who this was until the credits, but um, Johnny Cash is covered with bees and singing death metal into a telephone? Yeah, that is a scene. In, that is a scene in the movie. That is a great scene. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. But learning that it was supposed to be Johnny Cash at the end, I was like, "Oh, do I need to rewatch this?" <laughs> I, well, that's a question I think we're going to have to ask ourselves at the end of discussing it. Uh huh. Um, 
Does anyone need to watch this? Does anyone need to rewatch this? Yes. Jack has, and I will tell you at what point I was like, okay, uh, I need to get on this, this dude's level or I'm going to have a tough sit. Um, was the fairly explicit sexual intercourse scene. And then um, the, the erect male member comes out and it has, <laughs> it has a beehive for uh-huh. the head and a bee comes out. And I was like laughing so hard at the audacity of it. I was like, okay, I, I, if I don't get on this film's level, then I have another hour and 10 minutes. It's going to be tough. So I just kind of let myself (laughs) go with it after that point. I am glad. Yeah. I am glad that uh, I I wasn't at your house watching this, like sitting between (laughs) you two because I had a lot of reactions. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. But 1999, same year as Julian Donkey Boy and The Insider, 8mm and Bringing Out the Dead, along with True Crime. True Crime, Speed Zoo. Everybody loves Speed Zoo. <laughs> so, uh, Jack, you've been editing some of these episodes occasionally. Yeah. Um, do you have a, do you want to give a 60 second synopsis of this film? Oh, Jesus. And, and um, here, if we haven't tipped it off yet, this is an art film, right? Um, this is a film with very little dialogue. It's like, uh, to anyone listening who does, who hasn't seen this, which is, I don't know if anyone will listen, but um, it's basically when you go into a museum and you see one of those art movies playing on a loop on a projector and you watch a few minutes of it and then you leave because you get bored. This is basically one of those. Yeah, for 70, 70 80 minutes, 80 yes. minutes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I can try to give a synopsis, should I? Yeah, this would be good. Go for it. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll start a timer here for myself. Uh, Cremaster 2 is a gothic horror neo-noir Americana western <laughs> art film that loosely follows Norman Mailer's novel The Executioner's Song about Gary Gilmore, the murderer or serial killer, I don't know, in Utah and basically starts off with Gilmore's parents meeting a fortune teller, um, and then his mom gets impregnated with bees, and then we Johnny Cash is covered in bees, and then Gary Gilmore commits one of his infamous murders after a gas station attendant catches him playing with Vaseline in one of his two cars that are connected with a Vaseline tube, and then he shoots him in the head, and then there's some Mormon temples, and then... Gary Gilmore is executed by riding a bull and then he falls off, I think, and cops are watching in Antarctica, maybe. And then Harry Houdini's also there and the fortune teller lady tells him something and then there's drone shots and the movie ends. Helicopter shots. Right, you me. skipped over the best part. What's the best part? Well, other than the Johnny Cash in the credits, um, the dog owned by the lady walking through that warehouse at the end is played by a dog whose name is uh, Jacqueline Molasses. <laughs> Which is a fucking great dog name. Wow. <laughs> uh, I would have hired that dog just for the name. It does seem like, uh, Ken, you were really trying to latch on to something. And so you paid attention. Like you, you woke up at the very end when the credits were rolling. And you're like, oh, oh, this is some good stuff. <laughs> um, Tom, no, did I've... you not like this movie? Uh, I enjoyed portions of this movie. Um. I 
didn't I wasn't on board really for the, during the séance. Uh I was hoping for something a little bit more, something a little bit more interesting. But when we go from there to the sex and the, with the plastic corsets, and you have, uh, yeah, the the intercourse and the bees, I got the bee sequence. I like a lot. Uh, they probably had the bee budget of the original Candyman. Uh, <laughs> it uh, so the whole corset, uh, uh, male female intercourse, bees. Uh, beehives dripping, bees flying around to the death metal singer covered in bees. Progressively, oh, the, there's there's the drummer, drummer first, yeah, which the, is fucking amazing. The drummer's great, and the drummer's at the same like he's playing along basically with the bees buzzing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you have somebody on the phone who is uh, doing like death metal, black metal, screaming. Uh, as he becomes more progressively in in bees, and the, it's like the sound of like it, I thought it was a recording uh, session just so that you can hear like the distortion on it so that you could like, that was the purpose of it. Um, but no, he's actually maybe talking to Matthew Barney in the car. I can't remember. Yeah. He's talking to somebody yes. of the gas station attendant. And then whenever we get to the car, which is kind of this Lynchian two cars at a gas filling station from the fifties that are mushed to get together uh, through some type of like birth canal thing, uh, I lost a lot of interest until was, what? until the it credits was, rolled. Well, they they were late sixties Mustangs, and um, it was it was honeycomb. It was a honeycomb. There's so much hexagonal uh, design in the first portion of this movie. Um, yeah, the whole thing was just honeycomb between them. Between the two cars yeah. and, and Gilmore's like going back and forth. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's it's like filmed, I guess, on a maybe a stage or maybe it was really filmed at night. Um, yeah, it's 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 like a black sound stage, and it looks like there's there's basically nothing that exists besides this little gas station that's completely empty on the inside in these two cars. And, you know, knowing, knowing about gary gilmore it's it's interesting that that the the sinclair gas station and you know the guy's going to get killed is one of the only things really from the the book that once it once they went to that sinclair gas station i was like okay now now i'm recognizing something all this harry houdini uh be fucking stuff i I didn't really get and i I thought maybe we were going to get a bit of a narrative and i think maybe it does because he goes from that to obviously um, the being executed on the yeah. on the Brahma Bowl, and I think that's in um, in the middle of Salt Lake, isn't it? Oh, I see. That's that why it was all sense. white. Yeah. Um, probably the only part of the movie, probably my favorite part, because it was the only part that kind of made sense. <laughs> and I know it's it's abstract and it's art, and a lot of it's just more about feel and vibe and mood, and some of it bored me. Um, but I, I'm always looking for tenuous narrative connections. And I guess that was the part that, that I probably resonated the most with me. Yeah. I really like the sound design and just the look of everything from the bees up until the point of the car. I didn't, I didn't like, yeah, the, the claustrophobic nature of, of the car and the pacing of it. But then I don't like the, what, third season of Twin Peaks. So it's, what? it's what? Hey, I'm just saying it's for different folks, right? Different, different right. appeal. Do you like the second season? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I think they get progress. I I uh, I think I don't know. It's so hard. With Bobby's song in there and like all. <laughs> Hey, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. We're talking about tough guys don't dance. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jack, you you apparently like this film and have seen it more than once. Yeah, I think this is my fifth viewing. Um, okay, the cinema- that's a lot of flights to New York City. See <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it legally. Uh, yeah, the Sinclair gas station scene is the first scene I saw from the movie because um, my uncle John former guest of the podcast shout out uh is a huge matthew barney head and saw a bunch of of his films when he was in college um legally and, yes legally and then legally showed Wait, he's legally in college or legally watching them <laughs> um yeah he showed me the the gas station scene first and that got me really intrigued into all the matthew mm-hmm. barney films and and as a four-year-old, you're like, this is amazing. This isn't a cartoon. <laughs> There's a squib in the head there. He shoots in the back of the yes, head. This is great. Great squib. Two squibs, actually. Two head squibs. Um, but yeah, the, the, this for a while, probably about a year, was my, my, my favorite film. And I watched it over and over. Um, and I, can't, I, I didn't really know that it was actually an adaptation of the Executioner song for probably the first few viewings. And I, I don't know what it's about. I don't, I can kind of understand a little bit of it to do with Gary Gilmore and Harry Houdini, the connection there after reading up on it. But um, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you what it's trying to say or what any of the symbolism actually means, if it does mean anything. Um, I don't know why. I, I, I think the reason I like it so much, even though I don't understand it, is because it sets this mood through the pacing, which maybe you don't like a little bit of Thomas, but um, with the, the long silences and just uh, uh, that dreamlike imagery of the Sinclair gas station and nothing else around it. And then especially the sequence with Harry Houdini at the end, which is my favorite part of the movie, which we'll get to um, Mm -hmm. just creates this vibe of like, it's the closest thing I've ever seen on film to a dream that I've had basically to what a nightmare feels like to me. And every time I watch this movie and it, and it ends, I really do feel like I've just woken up from a very vivid nightmare. And even though I love David Lynch's work and I love, um, I love dreamlike movies and this is the only one that actually gives me that same feeling. And I know it's not, you know, technically it's pretty fucking stupid with the the bee fucking and the he rides a bull and that's how he gets executed like it's i know it's dumb but it it's the only movie i've ever seen that gives me a very specific feeling and i know that's not that doesn't technically make it a great movie but it makes it one of my favorites all right podcast over do you i I have a note here before we talk about the end that this is from the maybe the first 10 minutes of the film uh, well, first, uh, I didn't realize that my aud- uh, the audio in the theater that I was w- watching this at wasn't on, and then I had to talk to the projectionist because I thought it was going to be. I was like, there- it seems like there would be sound at some point, um, but maybe that. So, watching the first bit of the film multiple times, it felt a little bit like a '90s video music video that was AI yes. generated. Hmm. Uh, like if you asked uh, AI to create yourself a '90s music video. It would have a lot of the same feel. Definitely. 
Okay. I was making yeah, sure so I wasn't off base there. This was a very early digital film, or di- shot on digital and then transferred to 35 millimeter, which um, presentation-wide is my preferred use of digital. That's how we all watched it, by the way, 35 millimeter in theaters. Yeah, in theaters, yep. Um, that's Legally. one of the things that uh, my Uncle John, shout out, really loves about Matthew Barney's films is all of them feature like this really bizarre liminal 90s like computer generated effects and they're used very sparingly um in the first cremaster there's like cgi grapes or like pearls that are being used to control people and in this one there's um some cgi bees that fly at the camera and there's the title card at the beginning and all of it i think really creates a very uncomfortable liminal space so do we want to talk about when Mailer shows up? Yeah. It's surprising because there's actually dialogue at that point, at the very end. Yeah, I guess there's a little bit of dialogue maybe in the seance scene, the beginning. But everything, it's very sparing. Aside, the only time you really hear humans talk is screaming into a phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the scene where um, the the fortune teller or medium or whatever shows up to Norman Mailer's like compound in the, in the mountains. And it seems like she, maybe she gets kicked out at first by the Mounties, but then she comes back in after the performance is over. I don't know if I, if I got that wrong, but um, that sparse bit of echoing dialogue between them in that empty warehouse in the middle of nowhere uh, with the lot, the footsteps echoing and the long pauses between them and the sort of, um, dialogue where they're, they don't really seem like they're responding to each other or even saying anything to each other. Um, it almost seems like stream of consciousness. Uh, it's just, like I said earlier, it's really the only thing that I've ever seen that like gives me the same feeling of being in a dream and trying to talk to someone. Um, and that's the scene that really gets me. That's the scene where the first time I ever watched this, I was like, holy shit, this is giving me extreme deja vu or something. And um, Norman Mailer, he's in this movie for like like a minute, and he gives an amazing performance, I think, as Harry Houdini. Okay. Well, it sounds like you want us to comment on that. Um, <laughs> how I, I don't know what it, I don't know what it would look like if he gave a bad performance in the scene. <laughs> so I don't know what it looked like if he like I, I can't argue with that. Like I've, whatever performance he gives. It's one of the best speaking performances in the movie. <laughs> it would have been nice if, like, it would have been great if uh, he did some ledger domain, if he did some um, predestination, like the the tricks, the hand tr- uh, magic tricks, right? Like well, in, in the movie that we watched last ma- week. Magic. Yeah. They lock him in a in a in a in a plastic sack with maybe some Vaseline in there and you kind of see him breaking out earlier in the movie. Does that not count? Does that not satisfy your wanting to see Houdini tricks? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I guess it would have been great if Mailer studied up and was able to do some coin tricks, maybe. I see. Or he could have held up a book that he wrote in the mid eighties and said, I'm going to write and direct the film adaptation for this and someone's going to pay to have it made. And they're like, no way that cannot be done. And then he does it. And it's like, that's the best magic trick I've ever seen. 
Is that your segue? No. <laughs> no, we're not we're not done. <laughs> but, but okay, you understand what I mean? Like um by all accounts the criterion uh uh films that he directed and were released um Maidstone and 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 uh Wild 90 are I haven't seen them. I can't I hope to in the near future. But they're they're, they're by all accounts unwatchable. Um mm-hmm. and Norman Mailer like we talked about earlier being like this enraged um alcoholic i just i just don't expect him to give as informative of a performance as he does in only a couple minutes here got it you're like lee marvin fucking killed it in paint your wagon <laughs> he did <laughs> he did okay though. okay so are we done i <laughs> <laughs> what can you say about an 80 minute movie that doesn't have a plot is somewhat representational but mostly abstract and has a lot of pretty imagery and you know it has some parts that will test your patience i don't know if i was yeah. inside a movie theater in a museum like we were last week when we watched this in uh-huh. new york um that was a great great way to experience this movie not like watching on my laptop with college football on in the corner of the room i mean that would be a terrible way to watch this right yeah. just ra- just as a random example All right um well, you know what i i think this is the the kind of movie for people that have um that love the floor sweeping scene from twin peak season three yes yeah. and that's that's the kind of that's the kind of art that i love like i love the the british film from 2011 um paint drying the 11 hour one so i i'm glad that he left it open for a sequel <laughs> and i i always think like i mean art films like this are are important for film as you know an art form in general because um these guys doing this work in a lot of ways are the ones that kind of push it forward and some things that they use in their films you know 10 years later are suddenly commonplace in mainstream films. Um, Which, you know, it's been over 10 years, but um, I I guess uh, I was talking to a friend of the pod, Ryan, about, uh, about this. And he didn't, he had a chance when he was in New York to see it and he decided not to, he wasn't too sure he was going to get into. And he asked like, Oh, you just got back from New York yourself watching this with your podcast hosts. Um, Is the film, does it look grimy or, or does it look like it has good production value? Because his concern was that to go sit for a movie that's this long um, and it not have good production value, uh, like he feels like a lot of um, art films do or, or lack, uh, it, he wasn't on board for. And I think that this look, this is a great looking film. It is. It is pretty, it is gorgeously shot and, I mean, a lot of the production is, I mean, Matthew Barney is a visual artist, so he puts a lot of his own artwork in the film and presumably into the art. This helicopter the shots, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a, it's not a, it's a, well, it, it looks great. Uh, um, most of the film looks great and the parts that don't, I mean, it's, it's not even, it's not like any different than a Hollywood low, like $10 million movie as far as production. Like it, it looks yeah. great. Um, the, 
I I guess the thing that I I like more at times, like at the very beginning of the film, like tw- uh, after the '90s music video uh, synth I got from it, I was like, oh, this is like Naked Lunch design, uh, uh, some kind of like Cronenbergian design uh, uh-huh. meets Holy Mountain, uh, uh, the Jodorowsky films, Alejandro yeah. Jodorowsky. Uh, and I love those, right? I love Holy Mountain. I love El Topo. I, I, I love those films. Um, I just think that, yeah, this is closer on the uh, impressionistic side than even those those films. Definitely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Those those films are also pretty inscrutable. Um, yeah, but they, they're thematic in a way, right? Like. It, uh, I feel like it, it's a little bit easier for me to get from point A to point B in those films, but also the music's even better. Like it, it feels like it's supposed to be a real film mm-hmm. sent through like multiple layers of translation, visual and uh, language translation. Well, that's why I, I said I, I, I don't know if I would consider Matthew Barney to be a filmmaker, and I don't know if he would consider himself to be one because I don't think this is it's technically a movie uh like maybe the next movie we're going to talk about it has shots <laughs> and actors and editing but um it really i think it really is an art installation and yeah um it's one of those things where i can't really i can praise it on the level that it, it gives me a certain feeling but i can also not um, I can also totally understand any criticism of it because it's not really a movie. It's kind of a collection of um, bizarre, bizarrely paced tableaus. And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. It just, you know. So I, I had a, a question for, well, for both of you. I mean, uh, Barney, I looked up his net worth. The guy is worth like $50 million. So th- this has been quite oh, lucrative for worth. him. That's worth <laughs> $50 million? So my my question is he he has stayed in this little this little niche of of the art world which is like its own little world and he's done quite well. Um, guys like uh, Julian Schnabel or the dude who directed Johnny Mnemonic. I mean they they both came from the art world and dabbled in film to however much success you might say those films they made had. Uh, Schnabel's made like two or three films. Um, but Barney has never shown any interest of, of tipping his toe into something more studio-based or, or more conventional narratively. Um, I mean, watching this movie, I'd be like, oh, this would be this this guy is so good in so much of this. It would be really interesting to see him um, tell a story instead of doing an installation. Did you not sit through the credits? Did you not see the, the scene where Nick Fury recruits Harry Houdini? <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed that part. I think is that free eye patch. <laughs> I think Matthew Barney is so dedicated to the bit. I think I, I don't. I don't know if he would ever do that branch out into actual filmmaking. Um. Yeah. I mean, I guess he would have to have. And 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 uh, honestly, filmmaking in 2023 is different than um you know the late 90s or 2000s when those other guys. We're given budgets to make movies. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to imagine where would he even go to get money to to make a, a fictional film. And if you if if you listen to the guy talk, he's kind of he's like the few interviews he's given, he's kind of hard to listen to because he doesn't. I don't really think he makes a lot of sense when he talks about his art. 
Um, and I, I do, I really don't think he would be interested in having any producers or any sort of outside creative control um, over over his films. But um, but isn't that the challenge though? It's it's like to see if you could take your vision and apply it to something that reaches a broad number of people. I mean, I, I'm assuming that's why those other guys went in to try and make movies to see if they could take what they have and broaden its appeal to reach more people instead of just, you know, this hermetically sealed little art crowd community. Um, and they, they <laughs> would see it as a challenge, a creative, a creative challenge. Well, um, he, is a, he is a nepotism baby. So maybe he's not interested in that. And he has, he has a lot of money, like he said. So I, I don't know if there's any, um, any motivation there. It would be yeah, interesting. Yeah, it 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 would, but we'll never know. Um, famously, Bjork's album Vespertine, <laughs> uh, which is one of her best, is all about her relationship with Barney, and it's a very sexual album. It's great. Uh, probably one of my favorite Bjork albums. Um, they're no longer together, so I wonder if if Bjork like plays songs from it on tour now. I don't know how that works, but um, it's a great album. And if you want it to listen to something somewhat related to Barney, if you don't have tickets to New York, like we did to go see the movie legally. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. recommended because you're not gonna be able to see this film anywhere else. Uh, yeah, right? definitely not. Don't yeah. email me. I won't be able to send it to you. Yeah. Don't email the podcast. Like we have some sort of file on it. Cause we definitely do not. Yeah, we do have a dress that looks like a swan, though, that Kid and I go back and forth wearing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And if you've heard the ruffle of feathers during our this episode, you know who's wearing it today. <laughs> I'll never tell. No, neither will I. Should I um, do uh, Google reviews? Or do we do are we that? bringing Google reviews back? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Welcome back, Jock. Hey, yeah, let's hear some googs. Uh, I only have letterboxed reviews. I hope that's okay. Boo. Podcast um, over. Michael on Letterboxd gives Cremaster 2 two stars out of five and says, do you consider David Lynch to be terribly pedestrian and excessively beholden to the linear narrative? This could be right <laughs> up your alley. <laughs> Shane Cannon gives it one and a half stars and says, after watching over four hours of Matthew Barney, you get the sense that he'd be better at directing synchronized swimming than he is at directing films. It's a lofty pursuit, coaching synchronized swimming. And then finally, R. Levy gives it three and a half stars and says, the B movie. Nice. Very right, good. That's it. All right, let's take a break. I gotta take a break. Well, can we put off somehow talking about the next film for a week? Are or you two? fucking kidding? Are you fucking kidding? You don't Tough love guys Golan Globes? Dance? Oh my gosh. Golan and Globus present a film by Norman Mailer, <laughs> Tough Guys Don't Dance, one of the single greatest title introductions in film history. <laughs> what are you what are you telling me here thomas you don't want to talk about this film i i don't want you to call me mr five <laughs> <laughs> you gotta earn it first buddy <laughs> oh boy oh god oh man oh god oh, man. 
Oh god, oh man, oh god, oh man. Oh god, oh man, oh god. Um yeah. That is probably the most famous scene from this movie, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. And somebody interviewed Mailer about that scene and he was like, Yeah, everybody wanted me to cut it. <laughs> but, really? <laughs> but th- th- there's a truth in it. <laughs> like, what are you fucking talking about? Oh, he says, I think it's one of the I think it's the one disaster in the movie, but there was a truth to it. <laughs> What the fuck? Yeah. Tough Guys Don't Dance. 1987. The Year of Untouchables, Moonstruck, and Empire of the Sun. Yeah. Good year. Yep. Not to be confused with 1986's Tough Guys with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas and a very young Dano Carvey. Woo! Uh-huh. Or DMS's no, is- I Don't Dance. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot that this movie is not. Including maybe a movie. <laughs> uh, my first viewing. My second viewing. My second Jack? viewing. Okay. Okay. And Jack and I watched this together last last year for the first time, right? Yeah, that was during my my mailer um, Matthew Barney phase. Um, uh-huh. I really wanted to watch this movie, and it's I. After watching it a second time, I can confirm that it's a lot more fun watching it with another, like with other people, and maybe while drinking also. Because watching yep. it sober by yourself, it's it's a, a tough sit for sure. I watched it with uh, my wife, my wife, uh, while drinking last night, and uh. I can attest that um, it was a <laughs> fuckload of fun watching this movie uh, with her. Was it Andrew's it's first time watching it? It was. And mostly she just kept saying, what the fuck? What's <laughs> wrong with it? What is wrong with this I, movie? This doesn't make any sense. This is so dumb. I realized, and we haven't even gotten into the plot yet, but afterwards I was like, wait, there was actually a flashback in a flashback in this movie. <laughs> Somebody was flashing back to something that they weren't a part of. Yeah. <laughs> Inside of a flashback. I say, I say, I think I know which character you're talking about, Thomas. Oh, boy, wait, is Andrew on the podcast now? <laughs> Andy, what, you, your first time watching. No, that, that was that was Daniel Craig, who just popped on by. <laughs> the de- great detective, Daniel Craig. Um, uh-huh. I'll say, I'll say. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you like this film so much, uh, Ken, that you actually have Tim Madden tattooed on you, if I remember right. <laughs> it it just says Madden. Madden. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a heart with a, a little thorn. And it's like um Madden love. <laughs> it's it's a, you don't remember getting it, it's on your shoulder. Man, we're getting into the uh-huh. plot already. Um Not, they wanted to give it to me on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> you were so drunk. Um <laughs> so this movie was shot on location in Provincetown. Um, it's based off of a book, also written by Norman Mailer. That's the research that I did. <laughs> well, it, it was it was a book he wrote in two months um, to fulfill a contract uh, contractual obligation, um, and he said it was very much indebted to Raymond Chandler. Um, I'm a huge Raymond Chandler fan, and you know the the thing about Chandler is he would always take 
two plots that don't have anything to do with each other and somehow put it together like an episode of Seinfeld to where at the end they do. Like Chandler was the original Larry David. And I kind of feel like Mailer took that template, but then he added six or seven more plots. You know what people like? (laughs) (laughs) More plots. (laughs) Right. Well, I felt at one moment, I was like, oh, this feels a little bit like Inherent Vice, the book, maybe the movie. Uh And I was like, oh, okay. It is going to be like a pastiche of a hard-boiled plot. And it's not quite, maybe it's that, Mm -hmm. maybe it's not. Wikipedia (laughs) calls this film, let me me get this right, because it's a little bit like, I think if you ever look up... um, uh, what's the 70s film that we like a lot that's really bad? It's great. It's good. But the Bim Mark? The Apple. If you look up the Apple, you're yes. like, oh my God. Wait, what's this film? Speaking uh, of Golan Globus. Yeah, exactly. They, Wikipedia calls this film a crime mystery comedy drama. <laughs> if only musical was in there, it'd be as good as the Apple. But I don't know if any of crime those mystery in this movie. almost redundant, almost redundant. But crime mystery comedy drama, romance? <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, Ken, Ken, do you have any more background on this film? Well, um, when he wrote the book, because it was contractual obligation, he lived in Provincetown. Um, famously, was visited by a ghostly succubus while in Provincetown, very much steeped in the lore of the city. And a a lot of the stuff, I guess, in the book has a lot more to do with uh, pirates and prostitutes and ghosts. Um, So he wrote wrote about a place. (laughs) Naturally. Naturally. Uh, So he he wrote about a place he knew. Release the Mailer cut. (laughs) The... um, There's a lot more sex in the book, too. Uh, Mailer was always fascinated by... Um, describing genitalia. Um, But yeah, there's a lot more hedonism in the book. And reading over the plot of the book and then comparing it to the movie, especially after last week, um, we watched two movies that were adapted by the person who wrote the book, Graham Greene's um, Brighton Rock and William Goldman's Magic. Uh, Both great screenplays. Um, And Mailer's adaptation of his own work is, is quite terrible and borderline incomprehensible yeah would you yeah um, <laughs> podcast over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no issue over here yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm wondering if he thinks that like a film as a different i mean of course it's a different medium but as like a whole different thing i uh it's hard to understand how he would let this movie be well, he when he spoke of film, he always talked about film not being uh, used to get to the reality of something. I, I find it really interesting to reading his views on film and then watching. This is the only film of his that he directed that I've seen. And I'm like, There's, this movie really seems like it was made by somebody who came from another planet after our planet was, you know, gone and we're all dead. And like watched a couple movies and then like, it's really popular back on the home planet where it's run by slugs. So they try and make a movie to appeal to those people, but they have no idea of how humans actually talk to each other or things actually happen. Yeah. 
It's like the room, um, but yes, with more exterior shots. I don't really know, <laughs> like because it, it feels like it's its own. I don't know. The room definitely feels like its own thing. This feels. I don't know. I don't think it has the same kind of like sui generis, like out of nowhere, born to straight up somebody's mind or accident feel. Well, he, Mailer would refer to it as, as a horror movie, um, which there is, there is, you know, we all feel like Marlon Brando at the end of Apocalypse Now after watching this. (laughs) Uh, So in that regard, he's, he's correct. But this was a weird time when Golan and Globus and Canon films, um, they kept these little hiccup steps trying to be legit. They're like um, they're like Al Pacino in the second Godfather movie where he's trying to go legit. Uh, and this was like going to be one of their big Oscar <laughs> legit. <laughs> so they're like, yeah, we got Norman Mailer. <laughs> we're making this, this, we're making this, you know, it's, it's got serious literary bona fides. And they really thought that this was like, one of the movies that was going to help them become legitimate and the opposite happened. I mean, making more of these movies, they didn't make as much money as Braddock mission missing in action six or whatever. Um, and it kind of led to their, their downfall a little bit, but I'm, oh, wow. I just can't imagine making this deal. And they're thinking um, this might not make a whole lot of money, but it's going to get us the prestige and the Oscar nominations. Oh my God. <laughs> and then um, yeah, I could just imagine them sitting there reading lines like, what what is the what does the lady say? Well, honey, I am a witch. I wrote this down. Good blondes are. Oh no! Um, Keep going. <laughs> You're not a real blonde. <laughs> I'm not going to do the rest. <laughs> uh, the rest is to her his wife who disappears. Is someone going to do a sixty second <laughs> synopsis of this? Can anybody? No. And she talks about her her um her lady parts being singed by fucking the entire football team. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And she's also playing a horn at the time. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's actually one thing that's in both movies. I think if somebody plays an instrument, maybe even a horn. Uh, yep. I wrote uh-huh. pussy hair football team for my notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, I, I think, I mean, uh, for Mailer as a director, I think, like, the, the main thing to talk about here is that... Is how terrible he is. <laughs> he can't, he can't shoot a movie. Um, I think th- th- this, watching it, this seems like it is made by someone who has never seen a film or has maybe seen, like, one great film and then decided they can make one. Because you, it is, you know, it is literally incompetently shot just on a basic filmmaking level there is a good two seconds of silence after everyone finishes their line of dialogue where the camera just keeps going <laughs> it's I wrote, so awful i wrote early on the the one shot that really i think encapsulates how this whole movie feels is um he decides to go to the police building and he walks in and then the camera pans up as the music is about to crescendo and it pans past the word police on the police building and the, the shot ends on just the top of the building as the music crescendos <laughs> instead of ending on the word police which is the reveal of the shot and like if you no, think that's no, they wouldn't bad, show that 
they would have shown that we're still on Earth. Is like this. Yeah, if you look at if you look at the star pattern, you make you can tell that you're definitely on Earth. You're not shooting this like <laughs> on a set. I, so the this the the cinematography in this movie is terrible. It's so overlit. <laughs> it looked like a soap opera. And in the first yes. hour, I mean, you have you have like seances. You have um, missing wives. You have um, cuckolding, uh, possibly gay man with his porn star uh, wife. Um, that it it's like a soap opera within another show. Like uh-huh. we were just talking about Twin Peaks and <laughs> Invitation to Love. Yes. <laughs> That this feels like it's made like that, like it's it's making fun of something that is so ridiculous and lurid, and has so many plot unnecessary plot complications. That that's really what this feels like for most of its runtime. It maybe- feels like kind of the sameness of all those soap operas. If you were just flipping the channel through them and coming back to it, like oh yeah, I forgot this guy has amnesia because <laughs> he drinks too much. He's, he's talking to his dad. I forgot about all that because it was an hour ago. and We've been in flashback inside of flashbacks and other people's perspectives. It's almost making uh-huh. fun of something that doesn't really exist in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and by, yeah. And by like the, the 15th time we cut to the back of Ryan O'Neill's Jeep as he's driving, <laughs> that's like you just burst out laughing. Um. <laughs> Uh, Ryan O'Neill, star of this film, <laughs> lead in Paper Moon, a great movie. That's probably the only movie he's been in that was good, right, Ken? <laughs> oh, he was in this uh, little art film called um, Barry Lyndon that some people seem to like. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he was supposed um, to be in the movie The Bodyguard, but back, like, that movie was in development hell for so long. It was supposed to be with Diana Ross. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, Ryan O'Neill. He's kind of, I think him and Lawrence Tierney are really the only, I mean, people make fun of the Ogato man scene because it is terrible, but him and Lawrence Tierney, I think, actually give the two good performances in this film. Wait, Um, if we had a name two, (laughs) I guess that would be the case because (laughs) Wings Hauser is fucking crazy. In this film, is, as a as a police officer, constable or something, hilarious. Uh, Lawrence Tierney is terrible. Um, Lawrence Tierney does give us the title of the film, though. Yeah, in the first again, talking about <laughs> it's not shoehorned of... at all. <laughs> no, not at all. It it yeah, opens yeah. like Quantum Leap or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, looks oh boy! Here. It's like oh boy, and then. <laughs> Oh, can the we? Flashbacks. I don't think you can do this. I don't think he, I don't think anyone on this podcast, and I challenge listeners to record something and send it in, can can <laughs> uh, can recap this movie sufficiently, satisfactory, oh. sa- satisfactorily in one minute. Can I try? Oh. Can I try? I'm just off the top of my head. Can I do it? Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me get the thing started just to see how short or far you go over. Let me know when you're ready. Okay, anytime. I'm just hey. going to go off the top of my head. Start talking. In Provincetown, a uh, man who is an alcoholic who wants to be a writer wakes up and finds his dad there. (laughs) And and he's trying to, the the last 28 days, he is a blur because he's a drunk. His wife has been missing for uh, over a month. Um, And then there are bodies in the basement. And then we go into 
flashbacks and sometimes flashbackwards are and I can't do it. Wings Hauser's there, his wife <laughs> his what his he was with Isabel Rossellini, but then they became swingers with Penn of Penn and Teller. And that lady who is Penn's wife, who Penn plays a priest, then goes and marries a rich person and tells Ryan O'Neill she's gonna come back and get the rich man's money and they're gonna there's a drug deal worth twelve million dollars. There's an ex porn star played by Francis Fisher. Um, fuck, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, 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 I cannot do it. Oh, and then somehow Wings Hauser is the sheriff, but he's also shacked up with Isabella Rossellini. I think that he um, is Eskimo Brothers with Ryan O'Neill's character thrice over. Yes, yes, more than once for sure. Um, and then there's a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking. Um, one of my favorite cuts is when he tells Tierney before the flashback star says it was a crazy summer. <laughs> yes. It, it kind of cuts to like, there's like um, Coke and, ca- and caviar. <laughs> and it's the whitest party you have ever seen. <laughs> um, one of the funniest cuts in well, the movie unintentionally. Yeah. Unintent- I mean, that's the question of this film because I, when we get to the end and they're and father and son are dumping bodies and they have a very choice song playing. <laughs> it's like, what are you <laughs> like a lifetime movie? <laughs> but, but yeah, this is crazy suburb. You cut to yeah caviar on the table along with cocaine. Uh, somebody, somebody knocks on the door, rings the doorbell. Some, some gal says, it's my boyfriend goes, takes her top off opens the door and it's the cop and it's the new cop in town and they're t- and it's like well just be off duty and come in and it is what i don't understand like i've immediately lost and i never really gained my bearings throughout the rest of it despite like getting more there's a point in this film let's say this how long is this film maybe 90 minutes uh it's an hour longer. 47 hour 47 so we spend like the first hour in flashback of yeah. uh, of uh, um, O'Neill and Tierney uh, talking, but no cut back to them. Like at the ta- like after a little while, you just stay in flashback, and then eventually yeah. you come back to the present time, and then when it comes back to the present time, you're like, okay, uh, things are going to start making sense. I know where I know where the plot. I know where everything's going, and then they start introducing all these other fucking twists and plots <laughs> and characters and, and characters apparently in the like, present time and then one of the main characters who is largely the impetus of it apparently was a school chum of ryan o'neill's character um, oh yeah they were both expelled from exeter at the same time and he was the one that penn's wife went to with the it, none of it makes any sense i don't know what's going on I I I couldn't tell you a single thing about the plot, but at the point where the guy with the the Daniel Craig accent is leading him on the over the the pier with the gun, and then all of a sudden they're in like Lawrence of Arabia, it cuts to <laughs> like the middle of the desert. At that at that point, I was like, I had to pause it and read the Wikipedia article to try to understand where I was in the movie, and I've seen it before. And yeah, I, that's I the craziest thing is that both of you have seen this movie within the last year and a half. Yeah, uh-huh. 
It still makes no sense. My favorite stupid thing in this movie is the dog. Where oh, there's yeah, no dog, the dog in the movie. Right. There's no dog in the movie. He literally shows up and Ryan O'Neill pets him. It cuts to a scene of these dudes who get in a fight with him and kill the dog. So the dog doesn't exist for the entire movie. And all of a sudden he's driving like it's his best buddy. And then literally the next scene, uh, a dog puppet gets stabbed. Yeah, because I was thinking, okay, they need the dog. He maybe he's borrowing the dog or something to go find something new. But he's going back to the same place where he found the previous head, right? Yeah. So there's no reason to have another dog. Who is the dog? It's his dog because he says your knife <laughs> is in my dog. I think that really that really is is my view of the whole of how to describe the whole movie is that nothing in it is kinetic, and that's the thing about any great film or at least any 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 good film a movie that works is that one shot leads into another one scene leads into another and nothing in this film even shot to shot makes sense kinetically um nothing in the plot leads into it like the 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 issue with the flashbacks early on is that nothing in the present tense that they're talking about informs anything that we're about to see on screen in a flashback and I think the the best way to describe it really is the scene where the bartender gets a call that's for Ryan O'Neill. And instead of telling him, hey, there's a call for you, he smashes the phone on the counter a couple times to get his attention, which would disorient realistically anyone on the other end of the phone. And I really think that's what Mailer is doing to his audience here. But on purpose? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Was Mailer and, like, out and- of his mind, like drunk? And high and if he, filming this? Well, maybe Dennis Hopper style, right? But Ed, if he picked up that phone and there was somebody screaming death metal on the other end, it <laughs> makes just as much sense. Have yeah. you guys seen uh, 2003's View from the Top with Gwyneth Paltrow? Nope. I've read the novel about it, or the, the book about it. Oh, great. By Richard... Um, Iowate, I can't yeah. say it. That's yeah. a great book. Okay. Iowate. Thank you. Oh, uh, it's great, right? Uh, yeah. The, the the plot of this movie is similar at some point because the uh, woman, the preacher's wife, who we meet at the very beginning of the film, uh, who's now married to the O'Neill character. Whose uh, accent is, is Foghorn Leghorn, but from a lady. <laughs> yes. Okay. So uh, we, we have... The present time, which oh my is God. So, <laughs> which is uh, O'Neill talking to Turney. They go into a flashback. That flashback is the summer craziness where uh, O'Neill's wife leaves him. That we find out in another flashback, maybe inside of that one, that O'Neill met her whenever he was married to. Uh, Isabella Rosalini's character by reading a some type of sex magazine and finding it there were uh, swingers. Right. Her yeah, idea... It's screw. It's Screw Magazine, hey. even though it's a newspaper. That bugs me. Because <laughs> I was just reading this magazine. He pulls okay. out a newspaper. Look, we don't all have old copies of Screw lying around, nor are we subscribers. <laughs> like, it's okay, Ken. Like, Right to them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that we then her plan. She falls in love because he because O'Neill gives such good dick or something with O'Neill. Uh, 
her plan is to run away from her preacher husband, become a stewardess, marry someone rich, kill that person, and then marry O'Neill so that O'Neill can be a writer. She tells him this as he's leaving the church. After they just had a swinging party the night before with the pen from Penn and Teller. And, uh, I say, I say. <laughs> that's a lot of thinking to be doing <laughs> at um, night and during the church service to like plan out the rest of your life and a murder of uh-huh. a person you haven't even met yet so that right. this dude could be a writer. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. That's, that, that's my only complaint with the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk about poor Isabella Rossellini? Oh, one year after uh, Blue Velvet and same, uh, same, um, Angelo Battle, I can't pronounce it, Battlemente did the score for this a year after Blue Velvet as well. Yeah. And it's interesting, whereas in Blue Velvet, it works perfectly sometimes, his, um, over emoting with his music. Yes. It, it, it's a terrible effect here in this movie. And she, it, it's like, it's like clown music. such. <laughs> She is such a great actor, and she gives one of the worst performances I've ever seen in this film. Um, <laughs> and same with um, the guy who plays um, what's his what's his face? What's his bucket with the the gun? Um, Word Wordly Meeks the Third, John uh-huh. Bedford Lloyd, that actor, that that terrible. I think it's supposed to be a Southern accent, right? Uh huh. Indeed. <laughs> I am not prepared for this imbroglio. And I think that's the scene where, where the first time we watched this, and then, then again watching it um, this time, the movie really, really gets to me, is that scene where he's leading him over the pier towards the water, and then all of a sudden they're in the middle of the desert, it looks like, and then all of a sudden they're back at the water again, and they've built a campfire. Um I think that's the only part of the movie that's actually gets close to being an actual movie. And yeah. it seems like the, the dreamlike nature of it is maybe informed by the director and it isn't just a complete mistake. I think there is one scene that is more emblematic of this entire film. Uh, it's when Ryan O'Neill wakes up. This is long after he got his tattoo. He's wearing a tank top and O'Neill covers his arm but you can see through his finger that the mock-up tattoo is not even there. So it, if they didn't have it that day, I don't know, but they were just like, they, he couldn't like put on a t-shirt to cover it up. So he's like covering <laughs> it for the entire scene, even though it's not there it just for continuity's sake. And it, it's just such a, a cheap solution <laughs> to, you know, shit that happens on a movie set. And it's like, I'll oh, just cover it up with your hand. It's fine. Um, I mean, that's Ed Wood level shit right there. Yes, this does remind me of an Ed Wood movie. Yeah. That being said, I fucking love this movie. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I had so much fun watching it yesterday with um, with Andy. And Jack, I think you're right. Watching it with somebody. Thomas, did you watch it alone? I watched it alone, so I think that's where I went uh, okay. wrong. I watched it alone and sober. Okay. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, because this, this movie just feels like it's beamed from another planet and, and should be a midnight movie classic. Yeah, it's, I, I would say it's up there with the room. They're they're on the same level. I think Tough Guys Don't Dance is a little better. Uh, 
when there's like a, an outline of from the shed he's supposed to be, <laughs> in Winghauser's house, wherever he goes oh, back yeah. to see Isabella. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where she says, like, oh, I call him Mr. Five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, I was uh, so excited to see Wigshauser like in uh, camo face paint, going Rambo, <laughs> going full Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> well, and he, he doesn't quite go, get there. He gets to go full Forrest Gump, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god! <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh boy! So the. I, I this is the second time I've seen this, and I tried to follow the plot as much as I could. I, I still don't understand any of it. Francis Fisher, her cuckold husband, the money, the drugs, um, Foghorn Leghorn, possibly. And there's a lot of stuff with male sexuality in here, um, like when Ryan O'Neill feels the need to tell his dad that he did prison time and he wasn't anybody's punk, and his dad's like. Good. Um, <laughs> it seemed like his dad had been to prison a bunch. I couldn't figure that out. Like at first, yeah. But he's also um, O'Neill's character's masculinity is in question because he's like, you can't do it when it comes to disposing of the bodies. Yeah. He's like not tough enough. Um, it's very weird. Different levels of masculinity because you have tyranny. Obviously, you have Wingshauser. Um, and then you have women, which I've read some mailer fanatics who think the women characters in this film are stronger than the men characters. And that <laughs> it's almost a, a pro-feminist <laughs> statement, the strength that the women characters, because they're, they're a lot stronger with their desires and dreams and aims than a lot of the men. Um, it's hard to watch this movie and, and have that be your reading. Um, unless you really want it to be, but you know, we all get different things from movies, I guess. And I guess if you are gay, you have to kill yourself in the movie. (laughs) Uh, yes. One of the, um, weakest suicides in film history is when Foghorn Leghorn and Ryan O'Neill have a lovely fireside chat on the beach. And he get, tells him about flash. He get, tells him what has been happening in the story, which includes flashbacks, <laughs> things that his character had nothing to do with. Um, and then he takes his his little gun he's been holding on him and points it at his heart. And there's the weakest gunshot sound effect <laughs> in film history. And then he just collapses dead. It's kind of tough. Next next time on Invitation <laughs> to Love, <laughs> he's got another body to dispose of. Yeah, and can we talk a little bit about the ending of this movie where they just throw all the bodies <laughs> oh! overboard? Wait, wait. so and then to, to like triumphant music or yeah. like it's not pop and circumstance, but it's something like that, right? And then they drive up to the house, and he says, "Whose house is this?" And she says, uh-huh. "Yours." And he's like, "Where did you get the money?" And she's like. It's basically like in Dark Place when they didn't have enough time to film. So they do like the really fast voiceover. She's like, oh, after I killed him, I found the money in the closet that I used the money to buy the house. And then he, he, the music turns like, like dour. And then he shuts the door and then it cuts to black and there's like laughter. Yes, like a horror movie. 
Is it is it the so there's there's a seance early in this movie and um, they're trying to get in touch with two this is in the words of the movie two whores who died in Provincetown and then O'Neill's wife the lady who met him when they were swinging with uh, Isabella Rossellini and Pana Penn and Teller and then she went and married somebody and then came back and anyway the whole thing um, she becomes obsessed with the two whores that died and thematically or narratively she and francis fisher are the whores of the story because how they get around in the world of the movie and they're both dead by the end of the movie so in a lot of ways it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that she had during that seance um and again i don't think that points to mailer being a feminist at all yeah (laughs) no Never call an Italian small tomato potatoes. <laughs> no. Oh yeah. I actually wrote that down. Never. Um, Wings Hauser saying you either get the enforcer or the maniac. I love that. That's all your two choices. Yeah. That's because you have no womb. <laughs> get your ass off my pillow. Um, was also one that I wrote down. <laughs> Uh, I didn't have one that I I didn't have a specific line, but um, I I would just like to add I love how for almost all of the scenes shot outdoors, the dialogue is very clearly dubbed over in post, and it does not match up with their lips half the time. I don't know uh-huh. if either of you caught on to that, but endlessly amusing. Uh, one speaking of dark place, I mean, I would love to have Norman Mailer. And Golan and Globus, <laughs> uh, cutting documentary style from this film and talking about it seriously as to what they meant when they were making it. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I thought he was like, I, I, I mean, he's Mailer's literally filming part of this in his own house in Provincetown. Um, <laughs> Holy it's shit. there's so much dark place in this where it's oh. like I was filming in my house. It's a big house, but so one of the things I wrote down early on was dumb memento <laughs> <laughs> because he has amnesia, but he doesn't really have amnesia. But it's amnesia from drinking. But he remembers kind of what happened. But he just found the bodies in the basement, and he says like after he found the bodies, then he doesn't really. He's just been like in a fugue state, but also before I don't. I don't get it. Like he has really good recall for somebody who has very bad memory. Because the whole movie is told in flashback of well, somebody who can't remember yeah. what, what happened the night before. <laughs> it's it's so it's so fundamentally wrong as a film on every level that like even the initial concept of it just it it shouldn't have been made. It shouldn't exist. But it does. It's, and and the wings ha- Wings Hauser's like I know you need to move your pot uh, stash. It's like somehow like uh, there's like a Brighton Beach meets Pineapple Express moment in this movie where the cops are like, okay, we don't want to like cause too much problems. But then he's in on the cocaine. I don't get it. Uh, Uh Uh-huh. I think it's extremely unfair that this movie... Uh, tied with Ishtar for worst movie of nineteen uh, what 
87, we said? 87. Uh, uh-huh. For the Golden Raspberries. Are you are you an Ishtar fan? I am. Um, yeah. We could do uh, Elaine May. Side hustle as director. Yeah. I like it. All right. Uh, how many of these do you have left of uh, the season? That's a really good question. <laughs> okay. Um, I know we have Charles Lawton left and Frank Oz, maybe, maybe Elaine May. So two or three. Cool. Right, Thomas? Yeah, we'll be wrapping it up soon with, uh, what, Tom Green? Yeah, or Charles Lawton. (laughs) 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 Basically, Um, movies. Yes, yes, for sure. Um. Night of the Hunter and Freddy Got Fingered. If you <laughs> squint, it's the same movie. Proud. He has proud written on his, on his tat- knuckles. <laughs> proud. <laughs> proud. Oh, oh boy. Um, uh, do you want me to we do getting... some Google reviews real quick? Uh, please. All right. Um... Well, can can I say one more? I want to say one more thing about this movie, where he he has a, a dope stash, and very early on, Wings Hauser says, "You might want to check your dope uh-huh. stash," and then he goes there, and he opens it up the bag, and he sees blonde hair, which could be either Francis Fisher or um, girl Foghorn Leghorn, his his wife, but he doesn't look that. And then he goes back later and there's another bag also with blonde hair, but he doesn't look to see who it is. He just takes them away. Uh-huh. And each time he did that, my wife, Andy, was screaming at, not screaming at TV, yelling at TV, just look in the bag to see who it is. How fucking stupid are you? <laughs> um, and he didn't because it's this movie and people don't act like normal human beings. Um, there's also a moment that felt very uh, Matthew Barney where – uh, there's like a, there's some like low lifes that are one of them's part of the seance and they're part of the partying on the beach, but they're uh, it felt yeah uh for the most part he's one of the ones that gave him the tattoo uh so there's like these three dudes who were kind of slack jawed uh like yeah just always oh being God. drunk that and is one of my favorite scenes there's it's a moment so where they where they reveal to Foghorn Leghorn from New Orleans previous husband that they have blackmail material on Wings Hauser and and they lift up a decapitated woman's body like covered in paint from uh <laughs> an oil drum. Uh-huh. And they just been preserving it so that they could use that as blackmail material if need be extortion. I was I was thinking of the the previous scene they're in where um, the guy admits that he gave the tattoo to Ryan O'Neill because the scene opens up with one guy awkwardly standing in a doorway and the other guy sitting there and they're apparently watching sports ball. Uh huh. And it, I know they had money on the sports, sports ball, ball. I think. And yeah. it, it was almost like, oh man, I ha- it's it was very Tommy Wiseau where they're like, oh man, I had a bet on this game. <laughs> um, in a way that people don't actually talk, but. Um, that was a very was so moment because those actors are terrible. Most of the actors in this movie are terrible and many of them have never been heard from again. Um, <laughs> the lady who plays his wife, I looked up, looked her up on um, letterbox and not much there. Shockingly. <laughs> um, 
Isabella Rossellini is the only one who came out of this and was able to still have a career, I guess. Yeah, I, I, well, I don't know. I can't remember if Wingshauser did Beastmaster 2 before mm-hmm. or after this. Yeah, I wonder... I was ta- uh, There was a scene with um, Girl Foghorn Leghorn Wingshauser where she's talking and she like rips her top open and, and goes to him because they're going to do something. I don't even know what the fuck it's for, but I, I, I paused it and I, I said, so wait, this lady didn't wait, do wait, it. Was, wait, wait, I didn't wait, pause wait. it on the tits. I didn't pause it on the tits. I paused it after the scene. And I was like, this is like, this was like a big breakthrough for this, this actress. I wonder if she read the script, went home and talked to her friends and family saying this, this is going to be the movie that, that sets me up. I'm going to become like a legitimate, a-list Hollywood actor. Um, and what the disappointment is like for somebody to make a movie like this and think that, and then the movie comes out and it's fucking terrible. I'm working with name with Norman Mailer. The Norman Mailer? Yeah. Norman yeah. Mailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that scene is right before they cross the line. They, they call it something. And it's where they have sex on top of the corpses <laughs> that are buried or the heads. Uh huh. Huh. Yeah. The mind reels at almost every turn in this film. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too sure at that point. Uh, are they in the crime mystery portion of this movie or the comedy drama? <laughs> <laughs> or the horror? Yeah. Um, and then uh, instead of being dispatched, uh, Wingshauser has a stroke. Well, then, then he's dispatched by off-screen gunshot, right? Yeah. Because he yeah. tells Rosalini that she, her womb's barren or something. <laughs> she's small God. potatoes. Yep, never tell an Italian they're small potatoes, which I think Irish people would actually be the ones you don't want to say that to. Yeah, what, but. what do you, I don't know if Italians eat a lot of potatoes. It would make, it would make more sense if it was small tomatoes, right? Well, we're uh, probably talking about uh, the Marx essay in which he said that the agricultural farmers in France were like a bag of potatoes because they didn't have class consciousness. And she was very upset about that misappropriation of a Marxian, Marxian quote. Like the Marx brothers? Yes. <laughs> I think it was Groucho who said that. Uh, yeah, sh- <laughs> shot, a, shot an elephant in my pajamas. <laughs> How he got there, I'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, uh, Carlo V on Letterboxd um, says imagine Tommy Wiseau wrote a spec script for Twin Peaks someone only cleaned up the English to sound like actual English but changed nothing else then Golden Globus got like Vampire's Kiss Nick Cage to be an acting coach and finally put everyone on a strict diet of cocaine I'm 100% convinced that every ounce shown in the movie is the real deal and none of it went to waste <laughs> Everyone in this movie is certifiable, <laughs> and the grandiose garbage that comes out of their mouth, mouths is mind-boggling. Not even kidding when I say Wingshauser is the most nuanced part of this ludicrous equation. <laughs> well, he does slur the words, I made you come 16 times in one night after he just had a stroke. Still. <laughs> well done. Evan Pincus gives it four stars out of five and says, The devil made this picture. A fever dream of Pulp Fiction losing control of itself like Lost Highway, but on accident. People always talk about, oh god, oh man, but that's not even close to scraping the top 20 most baffling lines of dialogue in here. The opening credits alone exude an unrivaled cocaine energy. 
but quote a golden and globus production dot 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 of a film by norman mailer and <laughs> might be the greatest one-two punch of all time <laughs> yep yep I think that's, that's why we don't got. do. I think it's, uh, that's why we don't do Google reviews is because uh, we don't like to look bad. It's like having like we we don't want to stand next to our attractive friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is fun. Norman Mailer, good choice, Jack. Yeah, and since uh, nobody is going to listen to this episode because these films are so obscure, we could say whatever the hell we want, which we already did. So yeah. if you guys are listening, um, make sure to bring your umbrellas. <laughs> to Paris, two months from now when this episode <laughs> appears. <laughs> Paris might be gone by the time this episode appears. So yeah, uh, let's go ahead and wish you a belated happy birthday. Oh, thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Uh, we might, and Jack, your birthday is probably coming up next week, given when this will be released, right? Yeah, I'm going to be 20. Wow. Nuts. You're finally drinking smoke here. Yay. Wait, what? <laughs> you mean you haven't been? I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. As far as I know, you're staying at a seminary and you're learning to preach and pray. Yes. I am hoping you're becoming an airline steward so that you can find some rich woman to marry and then we can murder her and then you can support me as a writer. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. Uh, Rich enough, you can support us both. All right. Uh, So uh, thanks to Weird AI, possibly for the new theme song. That might be a new one, but it might be the other one that you're used to. We don't know. Yeah. Um, Um, And follow us on the socials and make sure to, uh, like, uh, give us five-star ratings on whatever platform you listen to this on, if you do leave a five-star rating starting now, uh, whenever this airs, uh, you'll get a mention at the end of the show by either Mr. Fats or the ghost of a former prime minister of England. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. Why am I the one that has to do it? What are you talking about? Those are those two things are definitely not you, kid. <laughs> yeah, but I have the Ouija board. Okay. I'm the intermediary for, for both of the those. conduit. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and Jack, thank you for being on the show again. Of course. Yeah. Anytime now that I have a mic. Yeah. Um, and next week we are doing side hustle season 10 and we are doing a new episode, which is going to cover. Thomas, don't leave me hanging. Oh, I thought we were just filling that in later. Oh, okay. Yeah. More Salma Hayek. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh, man, I can't believe I forgot that we did Salma Hayek this year. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, doing an Instagram reel, which is nothing but stills from her dance in uh, From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. Because internet-wise, internet yeah. it is literally the most overused... Um, but you know, why not lean into it? Anyway, that'll be next week in our time. Uh, thanks to Norman Mailer for having such an unusual life, uh, being a bit of a creep, um, but also leaving us with the magic of tough guys don't dance and 
the enduring greatness of the Executioner's song, the book, mm-hmm. maybe the magic of Harry Houdini. Uh huh. Yeah. Thanks for playing Harry Houdini in Cream Master Two. Thank you to Matthew Barney. Uh, thank you to um, the the museum in New York City. The of, of art of art for um showing the the barney cremaster films and um they really made us feel like it. royalty it was it was amazing just us three in they the did. theater um uh-huh. yeah yeah it was great yeah all right well all right i guess we're out me. put your arm around all me right. do you like me a little I hope so. <laughs> how do you expect i feel I'll say, I'll say, not very good right now, old chum. I'm feeling a little low. I got a bullet near my heart. (laughs) 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 All right, bye, guys. Bye. Bye.